Welcome back to Converge for Change, the business of social justice podcast. We are kicking off season two. It is 2021, y'all, and we are kicking off in high gear. We are excited to share this space with you to tell stories, educate, motivate, and move. Join me, your host, Takima Robinson, every week for real conversations as we pull back the curtain on social justice and philanthropy in America. Today on Converge for Change, the business of social justice podcast, Takima Robinson invites her good friend, Flozell Daniels Jr., to talk on the show about the first 100 days of New Orleans with the new district attorney. Here's a little bit more about Flozell. Flozell Daniels Jr. is the CEO and president of Foundation for Louisiana, also known as FFL, and formerly the Louisiana Disaster Recovery Foundation. He's a public policy and community engagement expert with extensive experience in legislative strategy, leadership and community development, and resilience building. With a focus on constructing successful coalitions to increase economic opportunity for all, Flozell is accomplished in expanding capacity and outcomes in areas including community development, finance, criminal justice reform, coastal and environmental policy, transit equity, and asset development. Flozell has led more than $60 million of award-winning community investment strategies while at FFL. Prior to his appointment at FFL, Flozell served as Tulane University's Assistant Vice President and executive director of state and local affairs for nine years. Before that, he cut his public policy and community engagement teeth as an urban policy specialist and administrative assistant in New Orleans in the administration of Mayor Mark Morial. In his civic capacity, Flozell currently serves as chair of the New Orleans Regional Transit Authority, co-chair of the Transportation Community for the Louisiana Climate Initiatives Task Force, chairman emeritus of the Urban League of Greater Louisiana, founding member and immediate past board chair of the Orleans Public Education Network, the Supreme Court appointee to the Louisiana Public Defender Board, a founding member of the Greater New Orleans Funders Network, and founding co-chair of Grantmakers for Southern Progress. Most recently, he was elected to serve as an advisory committee member for the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Foundation and as a National Academy of Sciences Gulf Research Program Health and Resilience Board member. Flozell was a commissioner of the Mayor's Working Group on Criminal Justice Reform in New Orleans that led to historic reductions in jail size, while serving as Governor John Bell Edwards' appointee on the Justice Reinvestment Task Force, Flozell was instrumental in helping create the most sweeping criminal justice reform in the history of Louisiana. For his work with the Urban League, Flozell was honored with the first ever Distinguished Service Award for Board Leadership for Leading Critical Post-Katrina Recovery Efforts. Flozell has also been recognized with the following awards. Friends and Family of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children Community Catalyst for Change, Grantmakers for Southern Progress Equality and Justice Award, Martinet Society Earl J. Amity Award, Bayou Rising Bayou Hero for Climate Justice Activism, Court Watch NOLA Criminal Justice Award, Children's Defense Fund of Louisiana Black Man of Distinction, and the Urban Conservancy Urban Hero Award. Flozell is a 2013 graduate of University of Oxford State Business School's Impact Investing Program, 2011 Fellow of the Opportunity Agenda Communications Institute, a Life Fellow of the Louisiana Effective Leadership Program, an alumnus of Leadership Louisiana, and a graduate of the Metropolitan Leadership Forum. Flozell has an MBA from the A.B. Freeman School at Tulane University, a B.A. in Biological Sciences from the University of New Orleans, and spent six years doing materials research for the United States Department of Agriculture. A New Orleans native who was raised in the Ferret neighborhood, Flozell loves spending time with his daughter and enjoying second lines, festivals, and other celebrations of Louisiana's incredible culture. Welcome, folks. We're going to let 
um, and give folks a few minutes to join us. Um, and we'll just chit chat as we wait for a couple of folks to, to come on and then we'll get started shortly. It takes a while for it to like populate the yeah. Facebook thing. Um, well, I'm so glad to be here with you, sis. This is me too. We too. <laughs> These are the ones I love because there's like no preparation because literally it's just the conversation that we would have anyway, right. catching up about about life and, and all exactly. that good stuff. Um, yeah. Yep. 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 All right, so I am a little jealous because the book, the Toni Morrison book behind you, yeah, of self regard, I left oh. at home, and I've been missing that book so much. So yeah, you, you know, it's a go to for me when when I need to just be reminded. There's so many little vignettes in there, yeah, um, from Tony that really helps me get grounded sometimes, right? And mm-hmm. I, my my honey is such a fan of hers that. I've been able to better understand some of her work. There's a lot of complexity in there that quite honestly has been hard for me to reach over the years, right? Some of yeah. it is just my maleness and, and my perspective and, and trying to get some better understanding. Yeah. Really beautiful things in there. One of my favorite pieces, my, one of my favorite um, sort of concepts that Tony gave us was this piece about imagination though. Yeah. And about the black imagination and the white gaze, right? Those are always my yeah. favorite. Like that's she she's so clear about that. So incredibly clear about it. So Yeah, it's, I think it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about imagination, black imagination, radical imaginaries, and the role that they've played in history and what lessons they teach us in this moment that we're in, right? Mm-hmm. That we actually have the capacity. And we have the right, almost like a birthright to Kima, to imagine what this life should be and to make it so. And a responsibility, right? Because I think it's the one, for me, it was Toni Morrison, it was Elizabeth Catlett, it was James Bowen. Mm. Of course, I'm going to be attracted to a lot of folks who are expats too. Of course. Who was just like, deuces, when y'all figure this out, I'll come back. Or right. Right. I need to go over here for a minute and right. really get my whole mind together to kind of look at this differently. But I also think about the folks who model the imagination for me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It looks like a lot of different folks. I've been obsessed more recently with like Andre Talley from Vogue. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And just there's just so yeah. many, you know, who in their field were vanguards and imagine, you know, yeah. into that. Like that's yeah. always my jam jam. I love it. I love it. Well, cool. Yes, um, yes. I, I says we all deserve beauty. Oh, we all deserve beauty. Oh, the, 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 the luxury ministry. You yes. know, I'm here for the luxury ministry. <laughs> all right. Well, we're going to start formally, Flozell, because we can do this. And as folks who are out there in the audience can tell, Flozell and I are very good friends and we miss each other dearly. Yes. And so this live will be what it is. It was going to be two friends talking about work near and dear to them. Flozell, thank you so much for being here um, and supporting the work of Converge and just giving us the time with this audience. Um, thanks for being here. I'm really glad to be here, Takima. We have been on this journey. It's been 13 plus years for us now. It has. You know, and, and seeing each other in different spaces and places through different experiences. And it's always gratifying to be able to do some good work with you. I appreciate you having me. 
Thank you. Thanks for being here. So we're going to start off talking a little bit about you, Flozelle, because I just back to what we were just talking about, yeah. Black imaginaries, mm. Black futurists, mm. um, folks who have committed themselves to liberation, not just inside of the work, because we're going to talk about the work later on, but also yeah. just how they live. So if you would help start our conversation, um, I really would love this audience to get to know you. So um, if you could, we've, we've talked about your bio. Um, if you're listening to this on the podcast, you would have heard Flozell's amazing bio. But for those who are tuning in live today, will you just really walk us through who you are and how you came to this work and add a little flavor, maybe one thing folks don't know about you, who don't know you close. Ah, so, you know, one thing that most people in um, either in my life or my work don't know if they didn't know me from a young age is that I am a former researcher with the USDA. I have an undergraduate degree in biology. And you know, Takima, like every poor black person in America thought, well, I'm going to be a doctor, you know. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I'm at UNO at the University of New Orleans in this biology program and got to my sophomore year or so, did an externship at the local hospital and found out I don't like sick people. I don't want to be around <laughs> sick people. <laughs> it was. Right, you're like, this ain't for me. Was, for me. No, no, but I, I finished the degree because, you know, first generation um, uh, college graduate and, and teenage mom and ended up doing research at the USDA. And those were formative years for me, really thinking about what it meant to have an understanding. Uh, we were talking earlier about logic models and ways of thinking about the rules of nature. And those mm -hmm. rules still inform my way of thinking. Uh, mm -hmm. to this day. You know, I am at my heart um, a son of New Orleans, right? And I am in some ways a child of the Ferret neighborhood where I, I grew up, where I always, um, I say this tongue in cheek, but it's real. It was, you know, women sitting on porches and men sitting on mail crates um, looking after me. I was mm -hmm. loved, I was, I was chastised, I was seen. I was believed in. Mm. Um, I went to the local, you know, literally this, the elementary school three blocks away. And so it was a community of people. Um, I am the grandson of a woman, my grandmother Sadie, who moved here with her four children from Mississippi and Alabama, looking to make a better life. I am um, the firstborn son of my beloved mother a 17 year old child when she had me, right? Mm -hmm. Who is still the most fierce and amazing person I know. And fly. And well, I mean, when I say fierce. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be loving Baba's pictures. <laughs> Shout out to Baba. Listen, her, her raising us, my brother and I, I mean, when I tell you, what's that book? The Half Has Not Been Told. Mm -hmm. um, everyday heroism, right? Yeah. What is this? This is Women's History Month, right? Every day. Heroism, the kind of stuff you don't know until you get grown yeah. and go, oh, this is what this was, right? Yeah. Um, I am the namesake of a man for whom I am completely satisfied to have his name, mm. right? I am honored, um, hardworking, faithful, loving, um, dependable. But but the biggest thing, um, Takima, is always learning and growing. Yeah. And so the, the, the modeling for me to be able to say, hmm, you know what, I'm a good person, but I'm not nearly where I should be. 
Like, what does that look like? And, and my dad, Flozell Sr., is a fantastic um, model. My mom, Betty, is the same way. Um, and, you know, I, I, am, I am the daddy of two beautiful children, mm-hmm. um, one of whom was, was taken from us in violence, my, the boy wonder, Nanamdi Ra, um, who is uh, so much, but at his heart, a brilliant um, and beautiful child. Mm-hmm. A very creative and um, and thoughtful, who who continues to live deeply in in our hearts and our commitments every day, um, and of course, let me tell you, the, my my daughter Julian. When she, I grow up, when, when I grow up, I'm a when I grow up your fellow <laughs> Howard University is just on, listen off the charts, and and Takima, she is our dream girl. She's an educator. Um, she is the best daughter ever. Um, and, and notwithstanding a life that really has been pockmarked with, uh, with, with trauma and, and grief and, and, and poverty, mm-hmm. um, a part of my past that I'm, I'm still quite frankly learning to understand and, and reconcile and heal, here I am forever grateful. I get to, as you, as you started this conversation, I get to imagine a life. I get to participate in making change. I get to acknowledge my imperfections and find ways to grow. And I get to work with you and others who not only love and wrap me up, but hold me accountable mm-hmm. and make sure that I'm, I'm showing up the best I can. And it's, um, as you know, I just made 50 in December. Yes. And I've been at the foundation for 13 years. Um, I've been in policy work for about 25 years and I am feeling even in the midst of this pandemic and all of my anxiety and Mm -hmm. I have not gotten my shot yet and all the stuff, I am feeling well Mm -hmm. and wellness is a blessing. Black people deserve wellness. Wow. Wow. So we're going to weave some wellness into our conversation. I know today we want to talk a little bit about, um, criminal justice. And Lozelle, you have been at the forefront, um, particularly locally and across the state of Louisiana. Um, You've been at the forefront of that work for a very long time and played many very different, very different and interesting roles throughout Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, the journey to decriminalize and um, to depopulate the criminal legal system, particularly in Louisiana, but also nationally, right? You've been, yeah. been pushing the conversation towards liberation. So today I want to talk about what's happening um, in that movement and in that work, mm-hmm. and also talk a little bit specifically about what's going on in the DAs, but we'll weave some wellness and yeah. wisdom throughout the conversation because I'm just excited about the audience getting to know you um, because what this podcast is about at the heart of it is folks who have assigned themselves a task of mm-hmm. thinking about liberation yeah. and acting um, in our movements to move us towards that. So that will be the journey we take over the next hour. I'm going to invite um, folks who are out there listening to definitely participate via chat. And if we have time, we'll definitely come to some questions. But thank you all for viewing um, live and those of you who will be listening in the podcast universe. All right, Flozell, let's get on to the topic of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And um, talking about uh, criminal legal reform, um, and we're very we're very particular with those words, right? We don't talk about criminal justice reform because we're in right. justice in a system the way that it has been set up. 
So you want to talk a little bit about your journey inside of the criminal legal reform movement, kind of where you kind of got on to, um, got into the work, you Mm -hmm. entered the work, and kind of how you have seen it evolve over time. Yeah, thank you for that, Takima. Um, so, so it's been it, it's been a bit of a journey and lots of learning along the way. I think it started for me as a kid, um, understanding that something was happening in New Orleans, which has always both struggled with violence at the community level and has struggled with one of the worst, to you to your point, criminal legal systems in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. You, you talk about a, a, a terrible. Uh, title to have, right? Uh, both the murder capital of, of America for many, many years and still in the top five to this day. Um, a legacy of violence that goes back as far, it goes as far back as, as post-Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And what we know about the visitation of violence through a racial and gender lens inside of communities that informs the way violence shows up today and how systems behave, mm. especially the criminal legal system. And so, you know, I remember just not understanding why do the police treat us this way? Why are these things going on? And then I, I, I get the opportunity to work in the mayor's office under um, the amazing Mark Morial when he was mayor of the city of New Orleans, now the CEO of the National Urban League. And Mark was a young, dynamic mayor, but we were in the 90s. So this was at the top of America's challenge with yes. um, right so-called drug-related violence. Yes. The way the way we now know systems, government systems, and others were aiding and abetting uh, those things and actually not helping investments to um, militarize police departments. And and I'm a policy person in the mayor's office, right? Looking at the intersection of community development, health, youth. Um, and all of these things and realizing even in that moment uh, with the help of mentors like Thelma French and others that we're doing something over here that's actually undermining our efforts to invest in people, families, and communities over here. Mm. And so for me, it was the beginning of of an analysis and and understanding and of of a bit of advocacy around how do we unwrap the mistakes that we've made by way of the system, how racialized systems have been developed in in, um, in the construct of, of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that some more later. Um, so I was able to do some work there. I went on to Tulane and was able to support the work of some of the best um, so-called reentry programs in the country at the time, um, even in the early 2000s, based on a trauma-informed approach, understanding that these were humans who had been traumatized, um, who were coming back into communities where their families were still undermined by socioeconomic policies and practices, um, the same kind that probably sent them to prison. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to deepen some of the intersectoral um, analysis and ways of thinking about, you know, we won't only do this, this uh, uh, reentry program over here, we'll also create an IDA collaborative so that we can lift people out of poverty, so that we can uh, really start to think about what does democracy look look like Mm -hmm. and how do people participate in it. And then of course, at the foundation, you know, one of the things we understood early on 
is that all of our investments from when we were the Louisiana Disaster Recovery Foundation, mm -hmm. when you and I were working together, literally out here investing in people first right. and the ability to control policy, to better influence decisions that were impacting them and their families. And every investment we made in housing and entrepreneurism and, and micro and small businesses so people could build wealth. Right and policy work so that people could think about what their communities look like from a planning perspective. Almost every decision we made was impacted by Louisiana being the most incarcerated state in the nation mm. and New Orleans in that moment being the most incarcerated city in the world per capita. Wow. So yeah. let's, let's go there. Cause I want to talk a little bit about the history. Uh, we've been talking about the history of systemic, racism and institutionalized racism and how that shows up. But what you're talking about now is systemic racism, how yeah. it gets baked into policies and systems, right? That then create a, a result and an outcome. Yeah. Um, so can we talk a little bit about, you talked about an analysis, you developed that analysis um, at the mayor's office and some of your subsequent work leading you up to the foundation. Yeah. Can you talk about that systemic race analysis that you bring to this idea of criminal legal reform? How do we need to see it through that lens? You know, part of it has to be um, what they say, the past is prologue. So you have to look at what does history tell us about how systems were designed? You frequently hear those of us in movement work and in social justice work say the system is working the way it was designed. Exactly. Right? So a few years back, I had the privilege of working uh, with a couple of folks um, including John Wool, uh, to write a report. It's called uh, Bondage to Bail. And we, we had a chance to look back to Kima at the history of the of bail bond, of, of money bail. And, and lo and behold, this won't surprise you, what we found was written evidence in the archives that their mm -hmm. intention in a post-reconstruction environment was to recapture black mm -hmm. bodies for the purposes of free labor using the law, this is why we always have when people say, but it's legal. Well, what's legal isn't, isn't always right. Exactly. Say that again. What's legal <laughs> is not what's always legal right. Isn't always right. Right. And, and uh, black folk, indigenous folk and others in America can tell you the story, right? Chapter and verse about how legality doesn't always prescribe rightness. And so what they decided back then was, well, we get to use the law vagrancy laws and what have you to just pick people up mm -hmm. and if they can't afford to bail themselves out because bail was their right right then we were going to have to you know to we're going to have to lease them back to the plantation or the or the the factory or the wherever the work mm -hmm. was and angola angola guess who we get paid <laughs> by the way right. the or the police or the city now this is back this is a long time ago so if you look now in the 21st century, here we are with a system where if you just look at bail, we can look across the system. What we're saying to people is if you don't have money, you can't be free. You can't be free. But if you have money, you can be free. Even if you haven't been convicted. Oh, you absolutely are not convicted. In New Orleans, and this is the case across uh, the country, more than 94% of folk who are in jail have not been convicted of anything yet. Mm -hmm. And we live in the country of proven mm -hmm. until, I mean, innocent until proven guilty. That's and what they said. You're sitting in jail because you can't afford to pay. 
this is what we see. And so what you find then are people not only sitting in jail as an affront to their civil rights, you find people dying in jail yeah. when they were only there. Uh, not, and no one should die in jail anyway, even if they're the worst offender, um, but only because they couldn't afford it. And so, you know, to your question, uh, time and time again across the system, whether it's policing, whether it's the judiciary, uh, whether it is um, uh, prosecution, uh, whether it's what happens inside of correctional institutions, both jails and prisons, the system has been designed in a white supremacist construct. The history tells us the story. So this is not debatable. And the work ahead of us is to both do the best we can to humanize spaces that were never meant to be humane. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, many people are talking about an abolitionist construct. Um, and, you know, people say, well, that's unreasonable. Well, everything that's good in America was was deemed unreasonable. Dr. King was called unreasonable, right? Malcolm X was called unreasonable, right? Fannie Lou Hamer was told, she, she's, you crazy. Right, right. What are you doing? Right. And I think there's something for us to think about in the criminal legal system. We need to look at everything and ask ourselves, if we were developing this from scratch today, is this what we would do? Is this what we want? Is this what we want? Is this what works for our people and our humanity? Right, right. And there's no way for that answer to be yes. There's no way for that answer to be yes. Mm. Right? So, um, Flozel, you brought up Reconstruction and that era of time when a lot of this was legalized and and documented and and put into policy. And one of those major decisions that was made in that moment um, set up Louisiana um, to become one of few states who held on to this concept of non-unanimous juries. (laughs) And, um, you know, I had a little something to do with that work there in Louisiana. So very, very proud of it. Um, And so very, very proud to hear about the leadership of uh, District Attorney, uh, New Orleans New District Attorney, Jason Williams, on picking up that work and taking it across the finish line. Um, So can you talk a little bit about your role in general with the new DA um, and then kind of reconnect us back to this piece, this new announcement we heard about um, how the new DA wants to handle some of these non-unanimous jury cases that been decided. Absolutely. So one of the things I get to do to keep in my, my role as CEO of the Foundation for Louisiana is to engage in lots of policy work and quite mm-hmm. honestly, not being restricted by the, the old norms. And so some of that is inside and some of that is outside. Right. Um, and, you know, I decided a while ago to free myself uh, from this idea that I can only work in one lane or that we, we get to work in one lane. It's just not the truth. And it's never how freedom has been attained. Mm-hmm. And so there's something uh, really interesting about the DA who ran his campaign. Of course, um, I don't engage in politics or campaigns. Um, um, my, my policy work is, if you will, nonpartisan from that perspective. Right. But he, he did invite me to co-chair along with Tanya Tetlow, the, the president of, of the uh, Loyola University here in New Orleans, to co-chair the transition team. Mm. And, and I'll be honest with you. I said, Jason, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I like to throw bricks and stuff. Like this is, <laughs> right? That's not my role. That's not usually my role. right. This is not. This is, you know. I said, if I have something to say, I'm going to say it. He said, listen, that's why I'm asking you. He yeah. said, I really am interested in having the discipline to be held accountable. 
Um, and so I've been really gratified to take on the role and to uh, work with Takima, hundreds of people who've been working on the transition team to develop a report that's forthcoming probably in a, in a few weeks nice. that will um, hold the DA accountable to the platform that he put in place. And that also takes advantage of the community's amazing wisdom and experiences uh, to get the best and brightest ideas. Mm. And I always have to say this because people um, are not sure. Certainly there have been people at the table with expertise in all the ways we think about whatever that means. But there are also people at the table who, who have PhDs from the School of Hard Knocks, right. engagement and experience, who are chin checking folks to make sure if you, I could, can I say that on your podcast? Yes, you can definitely <laughs> say that here. <laughs> to say, I know you think that's how that works, but that's not how that looked like. And, and so there's some, there's something really amazing, um, something really amazing about it. And, and so the, the transition team's gonna develop this report that is one part accountability measure, but it's also one part sending a signal. One of the things that Jason agreed to and that the public required was that there be transparency and clarity about what's going to be focused on. And so we're really hoping to bring that forth as a way of ensuring that that work is done well, while also ensuring that support is being given to outside groups who are going to continue the work of organizing and advocating no matter who the district attorney is. Mm -hmm. And those things are important to hold in the same space. So I, I have a follow-up question, but I just want to ask you, what does that even feel like? Right. After having been in the work for so long and throwing yeah. bricks and trying, you know, to coerce change and push change and nudge change and mm -hmm. fund change. What does that even feel like to be leading a transition team as such that has embraced yeah. community in that way? Like that has to be a moment for you after having been in this work for so long. I got to tell you, it is a moment and, um, I, you know, I've worked for a politician, I've worked with many. And so I have a lot of sobriety around what it means uh, to work with folks. Jason's an amazing uh, politician, but also someone who's on his own le learning journey, best I can tell. Right. And it's been really gratifying to see him already. It's just been a couple of months. Um, show up to do some of the things that matter. Right. So one thing I'll share with you. Takimi, you've been doing this a long time, so you know how important people are. Mm -hmm. like one of the signals I look for is, who are you bringing in mm -hmm. to do the work? And if you look at, so far, some of the early decisions um, about who's going to do the work, bringing in Emily Ma, the former head of the Innocence Project New Orleans, to be chief of the Civil Rights Division. Yeah. And if you know Emily, you know she oh, is. I know Emily. <laughs> I'm on the board. <laughs> a straight soldier. She has no capacity to do nothing but what's right and just, right? Um, and that's a that was a strong signal to me and many others, right? You look at, he recently bought Ben Cohen in. You want to talk about unanimous mm -hmm. juries. Uh, one of the chief litigants in Ramos uh, versus Louisiana, which gave us the legal work that we needed to push for, uh, 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 pushing against the non-unanimous juries practices here in Louisiana. He has recruited him to his office, right? Yeah. Um, and, and and maybe the one I'm most excited about, Tanae Felix. Yes, I who, saw that. Congrats. Right, uh, a public defender at the highest level um, who ran for judge, didn't quite make it, 
but has a way of thinking about uh, uh, justice, stability, and accountability, but for the adults, mm -hmm. right? So you have someone who's chief of, of the juvenile justice division, who's really gonna be holding all of us accountable mm -hmm. for the short-term and long-term work, including how do we invest upstream? It feels amazing to know that the things that we normally have to fight people over. Right, right. You know, we, we've all been there where you got you know, you get the media, right. you got to right. go sit down with the, with, with the media, you got to, you know, get your organizing together and make your grants and move your stuff. So those things are just getting done. So we can actually focus on the substance of the work and answering the really difficult questions that all of us are imagining with regard to what does it mean to have a community-based definition of safety? What does it mean if we decide that we get, as you mentioned earlier, to reimagine safety for ourselves in a way that's not only holistic and um, takes into account the healing necessary for us to get there, mm -hmm. but it actually does keep us safe. As it turns out, this system is not only racist, but it doesn't keep us safe. Oh, gosh. No, we know this. We know this. And this is not just the police brutality and murders that we see um, videotaped. We know uh, just to get um, possibly a uh, pulled over in New Orleans and getting a ticket, being maimed by the system, um, brushing the system is to be maimed by the system. I mean, that is how notorious, particularly the system inside of Louisiana um, yeah. has been. Um, so I want to talk a little bit um, about the particular decision around unanimous jury. You want to yeah. talk a little bit about that announcement and what that's going to mean um, to <laughs> folks who may have been uh, convicted under those decisions. You know, if you know me, you know I love words. Um, and, I, and I like things that make it clear. And so uh, the district attorney with a team of people, both his, his senior staff, but also amazing leaders uh, mentors of ours, like Norris Henderson and others, announced the undoing Jim Crow juries, civil rights. You know, I love it. I love the title. <laughs> Listen, I was good after that. When, when you know, <laughs> what they named the committee. When I was you like, good. Them? Okay, there we go. I'm good. I, I, I need to watch any of the rest of the press conference because I knew what the intentions are. Right. Um, because one, it's calling it for what it is. Two, mm -hmm. it's it is signaling by way of communication a lesson for a community as to where this came from. And three, it is putting uh, the so-called money, or at least in this uh, case, the effort where the mouth was. And that is, he promised in his platform, if I'm elected, I'm going to do something about it. What that doing something looked like was meeting with um, survivors, meeting with members of community who had been harmed or potentially harmed by the, by the folk who are, um, um, in, in, in contention, if you will, for being released or being considered mm. under the circumstances. It looked like looking at the law and following the law. So by way of Ramos versus Louisiana, the Supreme Court said non-unanimous non juries are illegal and unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. Go forth and, and make a remedy. And so Jason's the first district attorney to really step up and say, I am going to actively do what the people and the Supreme Court asked me to do. Mm -hmm. And that is to make right this wrong, this practice of more than 100 years of using non-unanimous juries and other vile racist practices of prosecution in the system uh, to put people in prison 
frequently to chemo when they were innocent. Very frequently. Very frequently. We have the highest level of exonerations of any other state in the country. No surprise. No, uh, but also, and we have to be real with each other. People who were present or did something, but may not have done something as onerous or, or dangerous as they were convicted of and given these crazy life sentences. Um, and so what you have is an elected official doing something that you don't frequently see, and that is what, what they said they would do. And mm-hmm. listening to community members who have expertise, right? People like Norris and others, Mercedes, the, the Promise of Justice Initiative, we know the, the folks who do the real work. And then saying, okay, I'm going to do what you know I should do. And I'm going to put the power of my office behind it. And I have talented people who know how to do that work. And so they are now in the process. There were some immediate releases, uh, a few immediate releases. And they're in the process of scheduling the uh, the court cases to process the rest of those folks through and, and see what the opportunity is. It's a, it's a good early signal. It's an amazing early signal. And I, I will say it is beautiful to know that the work that was done with so, so many people, and you've named the leaders in that, Ben and Mercedes and Norris and Andrea and so many others um, yeah. that I got to play a role in, a small role in. It is wonderful to see the work um, being finished, being completed, because yeah. it can't just be future forward. We have to make right yeah. the wrong that was done by the criminal justice system, we have to actually bring justice to the wrongs that were done by the system itself. And that has to be a big part of it, right? This work can't just be about, you know, how do we make things better going forward? It also has to be a conversation about repair, reparations and restoration based on the harm that was done. And that brings us kind of full service, full circle, I'm sorry, to our conversation about wellness. You know, wellness. Um, and both you, Flozell, and I have been on a journey for a really long time. And so many folks who have had to learn to sustain themselves in this work mm-hmm. around wellness. Yeah. Um, so as we get ready to wrap up our conversation, because wellness is what we want for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. We want a system that does not maim and harm people, but a system that really attends to people, attends to the trauma, attends to the hurt and the harm, because we know hurt people hurt people. So what are you coming to learn about wellness, especially as um, you do the work of liberation? Yeah, you know, it's um, it's really important. So I've been privileged to, um, I have both of my parents. I have, um, um, I'm inside of this moment that we're all in in COVID, right? Where we lost my uncle last year to COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I turned 50 in December. And, and so I'm thinking a lot introspectively to Kima about what, what is it that I want with the rest of my life? And one of the things that I am paying close attention to is this idea that we are owed some things by way of a birthright. And I think this is all humans, but my experience is as a black human and mm-hmm. a black person in America, we are owed not only justice, but we're owed joy. And I've been spending a lot of time thinking about what does that joy look like? What, is, what does it mean for me to actually have the discipline to manifest it and stop making excuses? And so there've been a, a few things of late. I've been um, exercising, which right. sounds like, well, of course you're supposed to do that, but let me just tell you, that wasn't happening, right? Um, <laughs> you work these 12, 14 hour days and you forget that you have to take care of yourself to sustain yourself. Mm-hmm. I've been eating better. I've lost about seven or eight pounds, which is um, 
hilarious for me because it's hard for me to lose anything, right? Um, especially in New Orleans. Especially in New Orleans. <laughs> Um, I've been I've been working on that, and um, last year my word was courage, and I'm 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 keeping that as, as my permanent anchor, yeah. right? But this year I've been practicing grace, and I'm starting that grace with myself. I love it, right? There's a lot that we carry, and that we get the privilege to carry, um, and I do a lot of really um, things that are gratifying. I love be a public servant as much as I can be and to show up for my people and for this community. But I have got to take care of myself. And a part of that is realizing that it is okay for me to not be perfect. It is okay for me to drop the ball sometimes. It is okay for me to say, no, I can't mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. It is okay for me to require people to show up a certain way. Absolutely. And it is okay for me to acknowledge where I've done wrong. Yeah. And I may have harmed someone and to imagine how to repair that harm because it's important to me. Um, hopefully, you know, I want to be an old man sitting on my porch harassing the school children. Right. Um, <laughs> they pass by and, and just, you know, puttering around in my garden and, and doing whatever it is that retired people do. And so I'm, I'm, I'm developing some practices that hopefully will get me there. Awesome. Awesome. And definitely, and a big shout out to um, Institute for Women and Ethnic Studies and oh, the yes. cohort, which we both were uh, family, family, family. Such yes. a beautiful process and um, group of folks that we both had a chance to grow with. Yeah. Um, all and, our still, and still in, in that space with them. It's a, it's a, it's, it's forever family right there. It is forever family. Well, we're going to wrap up and um, I've been doing this thing where on every podcast, I have these three rapid fire questions. These are not going to be hard for you at all, because I feel like this is our conversation all the time. Um, <laughs> but we're going to wrap up with these and I'm just going to sit back and, and, and experience how, what you, what you have for us today. All right. So the first question is what is justice? What is justice? Um, you know, I think about this a lot. Um, I, I think justice is one of our birthrights. Mm. And I think it's the opportunity for us to live freely inside of our identity. Mm. What does it mean for us to live freely inside of our identity? Mm. And to do that in our own space. So there's the idea of self-justice, I think, Takima, to be able to do it in shared spaces, we think about family, we think about community, um, and to be able to do it in institutional and structured spaces. We ought to be able to live freely inside of our identity in all those spaces. And the pursuit of justice is really, for me, thinking about how do we structure and design the, the space so that we can actually live freely that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you were talking about justice earlier and even talking about grace, I thought a lot about humility, but mm. how liberating humility and, and grace is. Yes. You know? Yes. All right. What is freedom? <laughs> what is freedom? So for me, I think about freedom um, physically. Mm -hmm. I like the idea. So, you know, if you get to know me, you know my favorite thing is to be in the street. I love street culture, I love second lines. I like carousing. So the, the other birthright, joy, like, and, and for me, um, freedom is being able to be in space the way you want to be in space. 
Yes. And so much of our experience and other people's experience in the world is that the freedom, the ability to move through space has been infringed upon, impugned, um, improperly restricted. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's a simple thing. We get to be free by way of moving through the world the way we wish to, while not doing harm to others. All right, I love that. All right, and lastly, what is one thing you cannot live without? Whoa. One thing I cannot live without is probably, if I'm, it's, it's boring, but it's coffee. It is. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a New Orleans boy who, who was raised when my mom would drop me off by my grandmother's house. My grandmother would like, as soon as she would leave, she'd you know take that percolator coffee and then put lots of rich cream in it, right? And so it would be more cream with a little coffee. Right. So I grew up actually loving coffee. And, and now I also just, I need it every day. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, it is probably my most consistent practice is my morning coffee. It's so funny. August is probably watching and he has been begging me for coffee. <laughs> so now every time he begs me for coffee, I'm going to have to think about, about you, Flozel. Right, right. Um, and I'll have to send you some Blue Mountain coffee. Would you please? <laughs> I will. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Just always appreciate you. Love you dearly. I'm so happy I'm on this journey of life with you. Um, and just thanks for, you know, sharing all of this with the audience, all of your wisdom, joy and justice. Well, I'm, I'm glad to be here. And thank you to Kima for your love and your labor on behalf of your people and humanity. We appreciate you. Oh, it's all love. All right, y'all have an amazing day, everybody. Thank you all to those who um, who watched and those who will be listening on the podcast. This will be uploaded this um, Saturday for a replay. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you all next week. We are going to be joined by the amazing Deanna Dirige, Director of Health Equity and Strategy from the American Medical Association to talk about uh, the work that Converge is doing with them on the Release the Pressure uh, campaign to help Black women in hypertension uh, so they can be free and well loved. All right, folks, I'll talk to you soon. All right, take take care, y'all. Bye-bye now. All right, y'all, thank you so much for joining me today. Wherever you are in the world, I want to hear from you. So stop what you're doing right now. No, really, right now. And follow me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Converge for Change. Now, after you follow me, drop me a line in the comments and let me know what you thought about this show. After that, make sure you subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast platform. We're growing our tribe of social justice warriors, and we want you with us every step of the way. Thanks.